This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. It's What's Next, Life in Tech. A look at the latest technology and how we use it. Here's your host, technology reporter, Mike Dubusky. In the tech world, it all depends where you put your eggs. So let's take a look at the new iPhone. From centralization to decentralization. Welcome to Cryptoland. To alternative propulsion vehicles that plug into your smart home. In America's new era in electric manufacturing. To the technologies that take us to the far reaches of our universe. There's a seemingly endless cycle of hype in the tech world, as business leaders, investors, and everyday people decide what basket to put their hard-earned eggs into, separating what's just a flash in the pan from what's next. Now, back to those eggs. Right now, a lot of eggs are going into one basket, artificial intelligence. We've got a lot of stories about AI and its impacts coming up, but before we go any further, I think it's important to just set the table. Clive Thompson is an author and tech journalist. He's written for the New York Times Magazine and Wired, and he's just the guy to tell us what exactly it is we're talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence. In a weird way, the term artificial intelligence is a little overly broad, I think, because when people say AI, particularly when people come at you with some company or some product and say, well, there's AI inside it. I mean, that could be anything from we are using OpenAI's latest version of ChatGPT in a complicated way to we have a bunch of if-then statements that will try and make a decision that were written by like a teenager in high school, right? So like you have to be a little careful when people come at you saying they've got AI because it might be something so prototypical and crummy that I could have written it in an afternoon myself or it could be something unbelievably complicated. I guess if you wanted to, to most productively say what I consider to be the, the, the modern forms of AI that are significant, that would be AI that uses neural networks. All right, what is a neural network? A neural network is a, is a, is a piece of software that is inspired by the design of the human mind. The idea that neurons are connected to other neurons and you give you know, the neural network a signal and it tries to predict whether or not that thing is a particular type. Is it a cat? Yes or no. Is it, is it a dog? Yes or no. Is this a particular word? Yes or no. And you train it by um, having it look at a lot of stuff and when it gets it wrong, you tell it and it changes the way that all those neurons are connected when it's wrong. And when it's right, it changes the way all those neurons are connected all on its own. And then after you've shown it millions of things, it's actually really good at predicting what that thing is, you know, what the next word should be, or whether that's a cat or a dog. But one of the problems with it is, it is in that training process, all those neurons have been altered in such subtle ways, the way they're connected, that it's very hard for anyone to understand how it's doing what it's doing. It is now a, what they call a black box. So that is the promise and peril of neural networks. 
Okay, I get that. But there are some like newer terms that I think are important to define here. For example, ChatGPT is now a name that people know. So what is this new generation of AI that's gotten popular all of a sudden? The AI that everyone is talking about these days is primarily uh, what's known as a large language model. So um, that's what ChatGPT is. And that's what the other types of things that are like chat GPT are. And uh, they are essentially AI that has been trained on a mammoth amount of human authored text. So that could be, you know, Reddit or Wikipedia or news articles or books. Those AIs have learned the sort of deep patterns of the way humans use language, you know, so um, fluently that they can now author their own prose. These AIs can can author prose that, that reads very much like a human said it. And, and those, what's more, those AIs appear to understand uh, or make links between concepts in a pretty fluid way. So you can say something in one way and the AI will still understand it. That is the, the form of AI that's in the headlines today, those large language models. There's a whole range of ways that people describe programs like ChatGPT. Like on the one side, some people say it's a singularity. It's a world-changing technological breakthrough. And then on the other side, there's people who just call it very advanced autocorrect. Where are we actually on that spectrum in your view? Yeah, AI is capable of doing far more than just what ChatGPT is doing. ChatGPT is one form of AI and a popular one, but there's a lot of AI out there right now. You know, it's finding patterns in financial transactions. It's finding patterns uh, in, uh, in sales figures. There's problems with AI, but the AI is being used in all sorts of places that aren't just auto-completing sentences, that's for sure. So to be clear, this isn't anything new, right? Like there's AI and Star Trek and old Isaac Asimov stories. Like this idea has been around for a while. Yeah, I mean, AI as an idea goes back to the 40s and 50s and, you know, earlier with, with sci-fi, but the 40s and 50s when they first had computers and they thought, well, you know, could we get these things to sort of uh, mimic human intelligence? Could we get them to make decisions or to understand things? But AI has had a lot of these ups and downs, like, you know, five or 10 years when it seems to be riding high, and then it crashes to the ground because everyone overpromises. This AI is going to be here any day now, and it's going to do everything, and, and, and it, <laughs> it never has. So one of the interesting questions now is, well, have we solved it, kind of? You know, have we, have we finally, after 50 or 60 years, you know, figured out a pathway that, that will just keep on going up and not crash? Clive, it feels like a lot of the conversation around AI references its pretty outsized role in pop culture. For example, the villain of the new Mission Impossible movie is a rogue AI, and there's plenty of examples of, like, AI gone rogue out there, things like Skynet from The Terminator and HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Machines from The Matrix. Is that the right way to talk about this? In other words, are we being alarmist when we make those comparisons or is there credence to some of those AI stories in the real world? I guess you could say that like it's fine for us to devote maybe like 5% of our intellectual firepower to worrying about whether AI will take over the, the world and kill us. I mean, it's, 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 I guess it's not completely impossible. We don't know how to get there. But, you know, hey, like it would probably be good to have some smart thinkers, you know, working now on ways to avoid that. But the other 95% of what we should be thinking about are the problems that AI can pose and is posing right now in everyday life. Because one of the problems with AI is not when it is omnipotent and, you know, all-knowing and all-seeing. It's, it's the opposite, when it's kind of crummy. 
and it makes bad decisions um, and it's learned stupid patterns you know or racist patterns or sexist patterns from the data and is now making decisions based on that right and that's happening all the time right now so I would tell people if you're worried about AI worry about the bad AI that's being used in the everyday world right now and don't spend so much time worrying about Terminator coming to kill us in in 50 years. Clive Thompson, thanks for setting the table for us. You're welcome. Clive Thompson told us that the robots are not likely to rise up and take over the world anytime soon. That's very comforting. But there are plenty of very real concerns about modern artificial intelligence tools. And where there are concerns about big tech, there are often regulators not far behind. And for that, we've got to go to Washington and ABC's Elizabeth Schulze. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, Mike. Give me the broad strokes here. What's the mood in D.C. when it comes to laying out some rules for AI and how it's used? Give me a vibe check. Well, you know, Mike, the conversation around AI really has been ramping up here in Washington and fast. And and some of this has been at the urging of some of those big tech companies who've entered the conversation and said, hey, look, regulators, get a move on this. Back in March, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, he was on Capitol Hill, and he made this warning to a Senate committee. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. In June, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer actually outlined steps that Congress needs to take to regulate AI before it's too late. We have no choice, no choice, but to acknowledge that AI's changes are coming and in many cases are already here. We ignore them at our own peril. And then in July, President Biden convened seven major tech companies at the White House where those companies basically agreed to work together and to take these voluntary steps to safeguard the use of artificial intelligence, things like allowing outside security testing of their products. Artificial intelligence or promises uh, an enormous, enormous promise of both risks our society and our economy and our national security, but also incredible opportunities. So I've actually had a chance to talk to one of the companies that was at that meeting at the White House. You probably heard of them. They're called Google. I've heard of those guys. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of a big player in the world of tech. So I talked to James Manika. He is the senior vice president for research technology and society at Google. And one of the things that James pointed out at the beginning of our conversation was how AI is really kind of already ingrained in so much of the Google technologies that we are using already every single day. People may not know this. AI helps us block spam in the emails. There's something like 10 million pieces of spam a minute that get blocked by AI systems. So a lot of these things are already using AI. The advances in healthcare and in and in science. So, for example, we now do in, in climate change. We now do flood alerts, wildfire alerts that are AI enabled. Uh, flood forecasts, for example, now cover 80 countries, more than 460 million people. Uh, in California, with all the wildfires, we help detect fire boundaries using AI. So, these technologies are already being used in a very useful fashion across many facets of society. But as we said, it's important to think about this responsibly because there are some risks and complexities with using these technologies. Okay, so we mentioned a couple different things there. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, as Clive Thompson explained to us earlier, AI as a term can mean a lot of different things, right? The AI that underpins ChatGPT isn't necessarily the same thing that helps with 
flooding alerts. But it is interesting to see the everyday technologies that touch AI, tools that you might not think about, like your email totally. spam filter, right? Yeah. So AI already seems to be pretty deeply ingrained within Google's technology. Does that mean that regulators are kind of behind the eight ball here? Right. So this was my question to James is, OK, so we're already using this so much in our day to day lives, but we've really only heard this kind of messaging ramp up recently, at least here in Washington. And his answer basically was that Google is welcoming this latest push from governments to try to figure out how exactly to manage the risks around artificial intelligence. You know, AI is an, is an important technology that needs regulation. Uh, it's too important not to regulate. Uh, but it's also very important to regulate well. So regulation is going to be very important to ensure that we both get the, we enable the benefits of this technology, but also address and mitigate the risk. So we welcome the attention that governments are putting to this. I've never seen a technology when we're this early get so much attention from everybody. And, you know, Mike, it was a little bit surprising to me to hear a big tech company like Google kind of welcoming this push for oversight for more regulation when so much of the conversation here in Washington around tech policy has been social media versus big tech or these kind of battles between the behemoths and the regulators. But what James was saying was that there is more collaboration right now, at least at this early stage, because the potential for artificial intelligence is, he said, so much bigger than some of those other kind of technologies that we've seen from these companies. All of us in society has learned lessons from what have happened with previous eras of technology. Uh, but again, this is a technology that is so powerful in both its benefits uh, but also brings up complexities and risks. This has to be a collective endeavor to get this right. Really hitting on sort of the climactic nature of this technology right now. And you can kind of see why when you look at some of the big concerns around this technology, things like a chatbot confidently spitting out misinformation or how it's still kind of unclear what big sets of data these things are trained on. And those are concerns that pervade Google, but also some of their competitors, things like Elon Musk's XAI and OpenAI itself, Microsoft. But like what specifically does regulation look like. Totally. And and some companies and actually other governments, the European Union, for example, has been out in front of this. They are, they're trying to actually lay out these deliberate steps. What are the do's and don'ts of artificial intelligence? Do we build on the existing laws or do we need to create kind of a whole new set of frameworks? And, and basically, in the absence right now, at least, of a full-on framework from the government, James talked about how Google pretty much had to develop its own set of AI principles that they try to follow and that they've been following now for several years. A lot of the technologies we're now talking about, such as these generative AI capabilities, came out of a research paper that was published by Google in 2017. This was the paper that birthed this whole large language model era that we we're in. So as we began to understand the capabilities of these technologies that early, we thought very hard about how do we make sure we think about this responsibly because we could see uh, the potential and the power of what we're developing. And in these AI principles that Google published, for example, just to give a specific, it says AI applications will not pursue weapons or other technologies whose principal implementation is to cause or facilitate injury to people. They say, for example, technologies that gather or use information for surveillance, violating international norms should not be used. And 
one key issue here is about how to prevent bias in AI. Right. This idea that these AI systems just reflect the biases and the preconceived notions that their creators have, right? Is that kind of what we're thinking about here? Exactly. That the people designing these algorithms could, you know, unintentionally even build kind of their own biases, their own experience perceptions into the technology. And then that just gets perpetuated as the technology spreads. So here's what James said when I asked him about that risk and, and the bigger risks if the regulation doesn't catch up in time. You have risks or complex that come when the technology doesn't perform as, as, as intended. So things like things like bias and factuality and hallucination. So we want to make sure we address those and work hard on those. The other risk and complexity comes from what you might call misapplication or misuse. Uh, when people use these technologies either intended or unintended to do things that cause harms. So think about misinformation, for example. Think about deep fakes. Uh, Those are all use and misuse challenges that we have. And finally, James really did make this overall takeaway of there's a real balancing, this real kind of walking a fine line when you're thinking about how to develop AI and how to properly regulate it. It's such an exciting time. We have This is a powerful technology that has the potential to bring extraordinary benefits to people and society. And at the same time, uh, we have to think hard collectively and together about the risks, the complexity, and work hard to address those. So I think I would hope that uh, those listening, Elizabeth, uh, again, hold the two ideas in mind and we will work together, uh, quite frankly, to get both things right. Yeah, that is just so notable to talk about tech companies working together and working with the government to, to crack down on this sort of thing. But I think that, again, speaks to just how significant AI is right now. It's a pretty incredible moment. Incredible moment. And we'll have to see, obviously, how much of the talk translates into action. That's something... I like to follow closely here in D.C. with companies and government, of course. Definitely. Well, thanks for giving us the view from D.C. Elizabeth. Appreciate Thank it. you so much, Mike. We're looking at the latest technology and how we use it. It's What's Next from ABC News Radio. We've talked about the importance of regulating AI, but before that can happen, we've got to know what we're looking at. Well, there are some ideas out there about how to separate artificial content from the stuff made by real people, but first we've got to do one last bit of table setting. So, Clive Thompson, what is generative AI? Generative AI is AI that produces something new, right? So that could be uh, me going to mid-journey, an AI that, that draws pictures and say, I would like a picture of a horse on the moon. Um, or it could be me going to ChatGPT and saying, write me a poem about the... Um, uh, 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 about about the the landing on the moon, right? Um, and they call it a generative AI uh, to distinguish it from from other ones because it's it's producing this new thing. But it, it's it's fundamentally using the main trick of of all neural networks, which is their ability to classify and predict something. To say, um, you know, okay, given I'm going to start with this this concept. Someone told me poem landing on the moon, and I'm going to predict a series of words that that would be likely or be meaningful, and I'm gonna hand that to you. So it's still basically doing prediction and classifying, saying this, this is the next thing that should be, this is, I recognize this thing. That's sort of, that's, that's the key trick of a neural network, and when it's generative, 
The only difference is you're asking it not to make one simple decision, but to sort of pour out a whole creation by predicting the next likely pixel, the next likely word. And as it turns out, examples of generative AI are already cropping up in some pretty concerning places, like the campaign trail. ABC senior reporter Emmanuel Saliba tracks the race to restore trust online amid the race for the White House. With the 2024 race in full swing, candidates vying to be the next president are engaging in all the expected campaign activities. But they're also the first to face generative AI, tools that can produce human-like content from text to audio to video with a simple prompt. But with technology developing at lightning speed, it's become harder to tell what's real and what's not online. Think about the way in which we make our decisions on who we vote for, what we believe, so much of it is coming from what we see and hear online. This is Munir Ibrahim. He works for Trupic, a software company that developed a new camera technology allowing users to save details about how and where a photo or video was taken. If you don't actually have transparency and, and a level of authenticity on the images and videos you're seeing, you could be easily misled without knowing the difference. This tool is a possible solution to the proliferation of misleading content flooding our feeds. You tell us when we're good to go. We tested the technology in Central Park, snapping a picture of the Manhattan skyline for ourselves with the TruePic app. TruePic is part of a coalition of companies called the Content Authenticity Initiative, and they're hoping to restore trust in what we see online through a new digital standard. Every piece of digital content has a history, and they believe that history should be transparent to the public. We took our image to Adobe, a founding member of this group, where Chief Trust Officer and General Counsel Dana Rao showed us how this new standard can be implemented through every step of a photo's journey. Think of it as a nutrition label for content. Like a nutrition label, when you're eating the food, you know what you're consuming while you're consuming it. It tells you the important information about that content. Who took it, when it was taken, where it was taken, and what edits were made. You get to decide for yourself whether or not you want to believe it. We asked Adobe to show us how this nutrition label, what they call content credentials, would work if our image was altered using generative AI. So they made a few changes. Type in any sentence, describe whatever you want, and the AI will make up a new image based on that sentence. It's really amazing. We enter a prompt into Photoshop using generative fill, a feature of the tool that allows users to create, add, or remove images with a simple text prompt powered by generative AI. We asked Adobe to make the changes realistic, so they added a flock of pigeons in the foreground of our Central Park photo. Because these were subtle changes, it may not be so easy to spot them if you saw our picture appear in a social feed, unless this nutrition label was present. And you just simply click on the icon there, and you'll be able to see information. Again, this was like the nutrition label for the content. It tells you, what happened to the image, where it was taken, who made it, and the edits that were made along the way. Rao acknowledges the only way this would work is if there's wide public adoption and if social media companies allow these credentials to be displayed on their platforms. We're talking to all the social media platforms right now. You know, we expect soon, hopefully by the 2024 elections, when this is going to be very important, this technology will be everywhere. Professor Hani Farid, who specializes in digital forensics at UC Berkeley, says generative AI threatens to further erode our already embattled information ecosystem. There's a handful of states, a handful of districts where you move 50,000 votes in one direction or another, that's the ball game. And between social media, algorithmic manipulation, fake content, existing distrust of governments and media and scientists, I don't think that's out of the question. And that 
to me is worrisome that our very democracy we are talking about here is at stake. But Fareed believes the conversation happening now will lead to change. The technologists, the C-suite of the tech companies, the government and the media dropped the ball for the first 20 years of technology. I think our regulators are asking a lot of good questions and they're having hearings and we're having conversations and we're doing briefings and I think that's good. We have to now act on all of that. As the 2024 campaign heats up, experts are urging that we need these solutions now. Dana Rao again. We don't want to see an election won or lost based on some viral deepfake. We have to have those protections in place in time. Mike? TruePic and Adobe aren't the only companies thinking about ways to identify humans amid an explosion of AI-generated content online. For this next story, I headed to downtown Manhattan for a meeting with an orb. We're gonna go visit a company called WorldCoin. Now, WorldCoin looks to create these unique digital IDs. And the way they do that is with these giant chrome orbs that scan your iris. The orb is about the size of a volleyball with a flat screen on the front. The scanning process starts with downloading the World app, which is used to generate a QR code. Showing that code to the orb preps it for the iris scan. Once a person is scanned, they get a world ID. The company says that's what we'll use to distinguish between online content generated by artificial intelligence and authentic human activity. But it's also prompted privacy concerns. Eileen Guo is a senior reporter for the MIT Technology Review. When you're giving away your biometrics, in this case, your, your iris scan, the stakes for where that data could be lost, how it could be lost, is a lot higher. In some markets, WorldCoin offers a cryptocurrency token to those who get scanned. Earlier this year, Kenya suspended WorldCoin's operations over concerns people were unknowingly handing over valuable data in exchange for free money. WorldCoin says that over 2 million people have signed up to get their faces scanned so far, but it's also attracted the attention of more than just Kenyan regulators. Both the European Union and the UK are investigating the company over its privacy policies. One of the big challenges that Emmanuel talked about in her story on deepfakes is getting everyone on board. The Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters, sorry, the X's of the world. But generative AI is far from the only thing the social platforms are contending with right now. For this next section, I spoke with Taylor Lorenz. She's a columnist with The Washington Post covering tech and online culture. Before that, she was a tech reporter for The New York Times. And she's also the author of the new book, Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. I figured as someone who's traced the history of the social internet from the early days of blogs to the modern influencer, Taylor was just the person to talk to about what's next for the social web. But first, we had to deal with a different kind of web. It was a giant spider oh crawling, oh. and I had to kill it. Yes. Sorry. As I was with the talking, giant spider taken care of, we started by talking about the term influencer economy. When you think of the creator economy, influencer economy, whatever you want to call it, it's essentially people creating content on social platforms or on the internet um, in exchange for money. Um, people monetize in a myriad of different ways. Some people do sponsored content. That's usually what people think of when you say the word influencer. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing these big content creators like Mr. Beast and David Dobrik and Emma Chamberlain launch their own brands, whether it's a coffee company, a burger chain, um, or even just a merch line. But I would say that monetization part is the key. And it's big, right? Like there's a lot of money flying around here. 
Yeah, well, according to a recent estimate by Goldman Sachs, um, the creator economy is set to reach half a trillion dollars by 2027. Um, it's actually quite bigger than that if you count sort of all the ancillary businesses and products that basically these influencers have created themselves and run. It wasn't always this way, right? You start your book, in fact, in the early 2000s with a person I had never heard of before. So tell us, who is Heather Armstrong? Yeah, Heather Armstrong was a pioneer. And um, it's sad that more people sort of don't know her name today because she was really the first woman to truly monetize her personal brand online. She was a mommy blogger. Um, she started off basically just writing really candid posts on her blog about what it was like to be a mother. In 2004, she put ads on her blog, um, which at the time was considered radical because although men in you know tech and um, politics blogging were monetizing, women hadn't really monetized to the same extent online. And women sort of talking about their personal lives and then monetizing that was considered really offensive to a lot of people. You know, there was this energy of like, who do you think you are? Um, but the fact is, is that Heather built this massive and influential audience, um, which she could then market to, you know? it's Nowadays, it seems so second nature, right? Like if a mom was to get, you know, millions of followers, of course you're gonna look to her for, you know, baby formula recommendations or, you know, things like that. But at the time that was completely radical. So sort of moving into the 2010s then, things seemed to become a lot more centralized, right? Instead of there being a bunch of different blogs, there was like Facebook and Instagram. So how did these early influencers manage that jump? Yeah, some made the jump really successfully. You know, there's some people that really expanded their brand. And then a lot of mothers, um, you know, sort of stopped like after blogging because it got it all got so visual in nature. And it's one thing to kind of write about your kids and write about your life. But when you have to sort of visually document it all for Instagram, it just rewards a different type of content creator. Um, and we see this happen often, right? Like one platform supplants another and suddenly the content creators that, you know, excelled at the previous platform aren't always able to make the jump. Um, so some, yeah, some others move forward. It, it also changed the, the monetization structure because obviously you can't run Google ads on your Instagram account. Um, and so you saw the rise of sponsored content in the mid 2000s, which was what we now see as these, like, these posts, you know, right, with like the hashtag ad. But that didn't really take off until, yeah, you mentioned the 2010s. And now in the 2020s, we're seeing new apps like TikTok and Be Real and Threads crop up when the old standards like Facebook and Twitter are facing like congressional hearings and investigations and flagging user numbers. So are we rubber banding back to a less centralized sort of social Internet or is this something completely new? I wish we were boomeranging back to the blog space. I think one key difference between then and now is just the uh, intentionality. I mean, so many that that generation of bloggers, especially the early mommy bloggers, they never got into this space to make money. They really got in to connect with people and find other mothers and kind of change the stigma around things like breastfeeding and postpartum depression and things like that. Um, and now I think there's a lot more intentionality. You see people sort of going into it like I need to go viral and monetize. So it's kind of it changes the nature of the content, you know, on these other platforms, because I think for too long we were all sort of posting way too publicly. Right. Like it, it's actually kind of crazy to have every single social platform default post to the entire world. Like most people don't want to do that. They really just want to reach people that 
care about what they have to say or sort of people like them who, you know, maybe might relate. I think the era of these big broadcast-based social platforms is definitely coming to to an end. We mentioned Twitter earlier, and I realized I probably should have said X, right? Because that's its new name under Elon Musk's leadership. The question I was going to ask you was sort of what Twitter's role is going forward, because this platform, you know, felt like it used to be sort of at the center of these online conversations. It used to be where discourse originated. We saw it show up not only on other platforms, but like in the news on CNN. People were talking about what conversations were happening on Twitter. Now that seems sort of different under Elon Musk's leadership and they're facing competition like they've never really seen before. So what is Twitter or X's role right now? Yeah, I think Twitter X, I guess, which is what it's called now, is sort of increasingly irrelevant. Um, the use cases that for Twitter have already sort of been cleaved off by other platforms. Um, I wrote a piece for The Washington Post not long ago about how Twitter is really no longer the place for news content. It's not where people really go to follow news or learn about the world. Um, that's TikTok. Um, you know, if you think of big national events like the war in Ukraine or even um, the example that I wrote about, which was a highway collapse, people turn to TikTok, local people, to kind of learn and, and analyze the world around them. There's a lot of um, really smart academics and um, people that are sort of experts in, in a myriad of different areas on TikTok that I think previously would have been providing that sort of commentary on Twitter, but feel like they can't reach, you know, the right people or they feel like they have to have followers. Whereas on TikTok, you don't have to have followers to reach someone. So you can hop on and be like, hey, I'm actually an expert in Ukrainian politics in this region. And um, the algorithm will deliver that to a wide range of people that are interested in that topic. Whereas you could say the same thing on Twitter. And if you don't have followers, you just goes nowhere. So, you know, I, I think politicians still seem to be hooked on Twitter and the 2024 election could, you know, float the platform and kind of give it a few extra breaths of life. Um, but I don't think that it's ever going to, you know, break out and be one of the primary social apps in this country. I think it'll sort of flounder along for a few more years before basically it's been made completely obsolete i really appreciate talking to you this was really fun to do thanks for your yes. time all right take care taylor all right bye we've gone from ai to x in our journey to figure out where tech is taking us as we decide which technological basket in which to put our eggs We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. It's What's Next, Life in Tech, a look at the latest technology and how we use it. Here's your host, technology reporter, Mike Dubusky. Technology is at an inflection point, an intection point, if you will. We're reevaluating our relationship with social media in a big way. People aren't buying new computers at the rate they were just a few short years ago. So tech companies are betting the farm. They're putting all their eggs into whatever basket they think could be the next big thing. And that means we need to separate what's just hype from what's next. 
It's hard to do that in 2023 without talking about artificial intelligence. That term has been making waves all over the place, including right here on the airwaves. Earlier this summer, a radio station in Portland made history by becoming the first in the country to use an AI DJ for an entire shift. And oh boy, did the industry sound off. ABC's Sherry Preston explores how artificial intelligence could be used on radio stations in the future and what live DJs have to say about it. There is a lot of discussion going on about artificial intelligence in 2023. Much of this whole show, in fact, is focusing on it. So how does radio feel about AI? Over the past few weeks, we asked some morning show hosts what they think. Sean Tempesta, mornings on Amy and Sean on 102.7 VGS in Las Vegas, Nevada. AI is a powerful tool, and in a dreamland, it will not be used for evil. And to pretend that AI is not going to be a mass extinction event for jobs in this country, be it radio or anything else, you're fooling yourself. Hi, my name is Jessica Bonilla. I'm at Mix 105.1. Obviously, you have the fear that it's going to replace you because automation, it's been known since technology started. So anytime that companies can figure out a cheaper, faster way to do a job, they will go with it. Hi, I'm Corey Dillon from 100.7 KFBG. I mean, they're telling us they're not going to use AI more and more, but I don't know that anyone actually believes that. And the better it gets, I do believe that there will be a bigger representation of AI in the industry. But how that will work out, I don't know. One of the people who thinks he knows how it will work out is Dan Ann Standing, founder and CEO of Futuri, a company described on its website as a trusted partner in driving audience and revenue growth for some of the world's largest and most successful broadcast brands. That means radio, television, and digital publishing. Since COVID, consumers have wanted more on every device, more often, people are watching and listening to more. And so how can AI help us? Maybe AI can actually help our best creatives to be more productive and to meet that demand. Because at the same time that there's unprecedented demand in the broadcast industry after COVID, there was a substantial cutback in creative talent. Jobs were eliminated uh, over the last three years. So we have fewer people at a time where there's more consumer appetite. And I think AI can help us to bridge the gap. And not all radio creatives feel the same way about- about AI that some of those you've already heard do. Take, for example, Toby Knapp. 825 in the nation's capital. You've got Toby and Chili in the morning, and maybe you're on 66. I tell people that I don't see it as something that's coming for our jobs. I think the only constant in our business is change. And the only constant in technology is that it's going to evolve. Just as, you know, as a music personality, I don't play CDs or cue up vinyl anymore. Just as we don't have big bands in another studio next door with another studio of people making sound effects, you know, reading and and performing radio plays like The Shadow back in the day. Your local blue coal dealer presents The Shadow. These half-hour dramatizations... You know, today's talent need to embrace what technology can do. As the co-host of Toby and Chili Mornings on 97.1 Wash FM in Washington, D.C., Toby writes a daily blog post in addition to his on-air duties. And he says programs like ChatGPT have helped with that immensely. He also uses it for interview prep and news curation. In that sense, he says AI helps him do his job creating more content. Where he's a little wary but not totally opposed is the use of his voice when he's not really talking. I believe for talent to stay relevant, human curation is extremely important and you can't automate companionship. That's why I see this as an extension, a a next step, an evolution of what we do. And my message to any music talent, don't be afraid of it because only you 
can do what you do. And that's extremely important. You can't replace that. Things like, I don't know, flights and checking <laughs> yes. bags on time. Fred Jacobs is a longtime, well-respected radio consultant. His take on all of this is sort of like Darwin. The strong talent will survive. Look, I think if you are an accomplished air personality, what AI will probably do to you is make your job easier. I mean, there are already personalities like Burt Weiss in Atlanta who is using AI to be able to personalize his syndicated show. I mean, it's inefficient for him to say hello to Grand Forks and Savannah and Fresno and everybody else, which is why syndicated shows never have even a dash of localism. But with AI, a personality like Bert can, can do that. The people that I'm concerned about are the people who have already been put in a box by their radio stations or their radio companies. They're pretty much doing a lot of that was, this is. And I think those are the jobs that could very likely be in jeopardy or certainly packaged up in some way. One of the big questions about AI and radio is, will the talent be compensated if their digitally altered voice is used in other markets? Recently, a lot of headlines were made when a DJ named Ashley, broadcaster in Michigan, lent her digitally altered voice for an entire show in another market in Portland. She got the name AI Ashley, and she was a guest at a recent radio panel where one question from a DJ named Giselle was about who has ownership over that voice. Well, who's going to own the rights to my artificial intelligence, Giselle, when I leave the station and the station maybe continues to broadcast my voice and I do not work there if they own it? They don't own it. They don't own your... No, they do not own my voice. They do not own me, No. Your artificial intelligence? No, they don't. They do not own it. No. Gotcha. Right now, it's up to individual broadcasters and their agents to negotiate how voices will be used now and in the future. And radio companies say they are treading carefully through the thorny issues that come with AI-generated content. A lot of questions remain, however, and a lot of broadcasters like Sean Tempesta in Las Vegas will be watching and listening closely to see how it progresses from here. When it comes to radio and listening to that morning show, that drive time back, that person that you know is gonna be there, you know about their life because they share their life, that's awesome. And when you take that away, it's gone. And once it goes, the whole medium collapses. That's the only thing that makes it special. If you take that last piece of the table, that last leg of the table away, it's going to collapse, it's bound to. The world of radio, as close as it is to our hearts, isn't the only entertainment medium facing an uncertain AI future. The technology is one of the main sticking points in Hollywood's double strike. ABC's Jason Nathanson is in Hollywood with how AI is being used in the industry and what has some so concerned. Mike, when it comes to director Scott Mann's generative AI company called Flawless. It's entirely Robert De Niro's fault this exists, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it is. It's, 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 Mann directed De Niro in the 2015 crime thriller Heist. Can't fix what I did, but I can stop it from happening again. It was his first time directing De Niro, and he tells me he wanted everything to be perfect. They worked really hard at getting the performances just right. Every little nuance, exactly how he wanted it. I saw a version of the film in a foreign dub, and that's when I realized how bad that process was in that the dialogue gets changed to fit the wrong mouth flaps. The experience watching it is like you're not pulled into it. You're not immersed. You don't believe the story because everything feels unreal. With the All that hard work getting the movie just right was destroyed. So we thought, 
there has to be a better way. Turns out there was, though it was years off. A couple of scientists working out of the Max Planck Institute in Germany were developing an early form of generative AI. So he went to Germany and pitched them on adapting the tech for the film industry, and their company, Flawless, was born. The tech would eventually be able to take a movie filmed in English or any language, record a new voice track, and the AI would change the mouths and facial movements to match a different language. And it was important to man from the beginning that only the facial movements be matched using AI. He didn't want the dubbed voices to be AI. The first version we ever did for the De Niro test was with a guy called Christian Bruckner, who is the German De Niro, right? Everyone in Germany believes De Niro sounds like Christian Bruckner, right? Because he has had a lifetime of playing that part. And so why would a distributor in Germany want De Niro to sound any other way? The movie Heist was used to create and test the technology. Now, fast forward to 2022, and Mann's film Fall. The first time the technology was actually used, but not in the way it was originally intended. What the hell are we doing? Fall is about two women stuck on top of a broadcast tower. And Mann had a problem. The distributor, Lionsgate, wanted it to be PG-13, but it had too many F-bombs and got an R rating. I think there's 36 in the end, in the, in, in the NPA were like, there is no way this is not an R. <laughs> they could try to re-edit the film. It wasn't possible to because the, there's just two people in that movie stuck in the same place. There's nothing to cut to. So uh, uh, that failed. The only other option was reshoots. And the way we shot that movie at the top of a mountain at height, it just meant that that was going to be way too expensive. Then a light bulb moment. What if they took the AI technology Flawless was creating to dub movies into another language and use that instead? So this is a, a thing where it shows the fall example and it kind of goes through the process. Okay. You can see it from... Ryan, do you want to press play? Now we're stuck on this stupid tower in the middle of nowhere. And I don't blame you. And now we're stuck on this stupid... Well, you're muting out and taking out the line. stuck on this stupid freaking tower in the middle of freaking nowhere. The generative AI tech changes the way actress Virginia Gardner's mouth moves. It looks like Scott Mann actually originally filmed her saying, Freaking nowhere. And Mann got his PG-13. But while the whole idea of generative AI in Hollywood is fascinating to some, it's terrifying to others. Actors on strike. We are all scared of this. We do not know what that means. We don't know where it's going. We don't understand it. Out on the picket lines, actress Lanisa Frederick is concerned about the unknowns when it comes to AI, and so is Justine Bateman. Test, 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 test. The filmmaker and former Family Ties actress has been advising SAG-AFTRA on AI issues as the Guild negotiates with Hollywood studios represented by the AMPTP. She's also a computer scientist, having received her degree from UCLA a few years ago, and she's worried about AI's arrival on the Hollywood scene. There's no soul, there's no spirit. You're not tapped in. Generative AI isn't tapped into anything except the past, or regurgitation of the past, and not even a, a new way to look at the past. You know what I mean? It's just slicing and dicing and rearranging, and it's not an artist. But her biggest issue with generative AI is that in order to generate, it has to learn. And her concern is that companies will train their AI engines on past TV shows and movies. A generative AI model is something like a blender. And if you turn a blender on without anything in it, it just spins air, it does nothing, right? So you have to feed it something. These generative AI models only function by consuming our past work. If the work of actors and writers is going to be used to train this technology, Bateman and SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild want consent and compensation. Get their approval to use their work and pay them for it. 
So when a production company says, Okay, I want a film that stars somebody who looks like a cross between Brad Pitt and George Clooney, dances like Fred Astaire, has a Spanish accent, and they're fighting pandas from outer space. Whatever. You just order it up. So you're mining all of this past work. That is something that ha also has to have consent and compensation. But even with consent and compensation, AI still freaks Bateman out. I think this is going to crater the structure of the business because it'll take out too many jobs in that pipeline and that pipeline will collapse and it'll burn things down. But I think on the other side of that, we're going to have like a, almost an artistic revolution. I think there's going to be a new genre in the arts, like jazz was new, like rock and roll was new. Not a, not a rehashing of something else, but something really new. Back at the offices of Flawless in Santa Monica, the topic of responsible AI is very important to co-founder Scott Mann. He says it's baked into their business model and promises their AI has only ever learned on material they had the right to feed into it and will only generate using data from the current project it's working on. Say it was, let's just take Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And it's, you're putting in, uh, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, say, is this, is this uh, yep, new yep, movie, yep, yep, right? Yep. You're not also feeding in Titanic and Django Unchained no. and his other performances I, as well. I, I, we definitely do not do that. Fundamentally, copyright is kind of the foundation of, of how we make art, really, right? And if we don't enforce it and protect it, then we have major problems. I'm, uh, I'm Mihail Eric. I'm one of the uh, co-founders of Storia AI. Mihail Eric's company, Storia, uses AI to make storyboards. Those are a kind of visual representation of a script used by directors and cinematographers and others to visually plot out what a film or TV show or music video or whatever will look like before you start shooting. And with Storia, you feed in your script and it automatically pops out a storyboard. And if you want to see what your rom-com might look like as a horror movie, just tell it. A Western? An Alfred Hitchcock thriller? In the style of Wes Anderson? Storia can do that. A lot of the, the base systems that we have have been sort of whatever's been scraped on the internet already exists. You know, anything that's publicly available, it will learn from that data. And so one of the major concerns is when you say like, okay, I want to see this in the style of Wes Anderson, right. it needs to know what Wes Anderson is. Sure, sure. Are, so are you feeding in Wes Anderson stuff into mm -hmm. your AI? Yeah, so that so that, that particular style can be learned from just sort of like, yes, any film that's sort of out there and, and you kind of put it together and that will be learned um, through the system. So that's where things get a little sticky, right? I, have you gotten some resistance from people who are oh, saying, absolutely. well, like this is copyrighted material. Absolutely. And are you paying residuals or licenses mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on that material? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I think there's a way to get kind of the, the best of both worlds where you can maybe learn from some of these styles because it is something that can augment people's workflows. But again, like you said, residuals that can sort of be applied royalties paid in certain ways to the folks that have that have actually created that that the IP that becomes sort of like training data for a system. I think finding that sweet spot is something we still haven't figured out, but I do think that the the right path is something where there is attribution and a, whatever that mechanism is, some sort of royalties are paid to the right people. And so if Wes Anderson comes to you or Steven Spielberg right. who you also mentioned and says, I don't want my material used in training your sure. AI, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you would say if they're not open to any sort of like that kind of a royalty system, you can certainly just exclude that data from the training completely. Back over at the flawless offices in Santa Monica, just two blocks or so from the Pacific Ocean, the main hallway is lined with posters of co-founder Scott Mann's films. But there's one poster that sticks out. It's of a movie he didn't make. 
a movie about artificial intelligence gone horribly wrong. Come with me if you want to live. I think that my favorite movie of all time is actually Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I'm a huge Skynet fan and I have a joke with the guys. I'd like to say, don't be Miles Dyson, right? I need to know how Skynet gets built. The man most directly responsible is Miles Bennett Dyson. Because you don't want to accidentally invent the thing that ended humanity. Of course you don't. But I think... Are you worried this thing that you're working on right now could be it's somehow morph into that at some point? I Not really. I, I think I see an option where we can do an awful lot of good with this technology um, if we're responsible with it. Reassuring, perhaps. But that's also what Miles Dyson said. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. You're listening to What's Next, Life in Tech, from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, a man who still keeps all his cryptocurrency stashed in his mattress, ABC News technology reporter Mike Dubusky. It's easy when talking about technology to exclusively focus on the younger generations, kids and their phones, and the impact of social media on developing brains. But young people aren't the only demographic that's going to be affected by whatever is coming next in tech. ABC's Michelle Franzen takes us to Minnesota to examine a healthcare company that aims to shape the future of elder care with a little help from robots. It's time for Eugene Sand to get moving. Do you want to play a game? Yeah. The 90-year-old has been a resident at River Valley Health and Rehabilitation Center in Redwood Falls, Minnesota for several decades. But today, let's play. He's learning some new moves with Pepper. Do you know Macarena Plans? Here you can see how I am doing it. Pepper is a four-foot-tall robot built with a friendly face and equipped with a tablet screen on the chest that can play music. Right now, showing Eugene how to move his arms and body to the sounds. And so this is the real deal for us because we can't get out and do things where he can teach us how to do it, what to do, to keep limber, that's the thing. You don't want to just sit and stay in bed all day. Pepper demonstrates the movements, dance, and exercises for residents and encourages them to follow along. One of the tasks programmed to carry out during interactions with residents. Eugene, who is mostly confined to a chair, says it motivates him. But he does things that we do and keeps us moving all the time. And that's what I like about it. Otherwise, I don't want to live in this chair forever. I've got to keep moving, keep my joints going. And he tells you how to do that. Pepper is part of a team of humanoids and smaller tabletop robotics that have been deployed to more than a half a dozen Monarch Health facilities across Minnesota. Thank you. That was good. Did you like that dancing, too? Pepper's specialty also includes talking with residents and checking in to see how their day is going. Hello, all. I hope you all are doing good. Are you all up for some fun today? The project is led by Dr. Arshia Khan, a professor of computer science at the University of Minnesota Duluth and graduate program director. This is just at its infancy. The UMD partnership with Monarch is part of a vision that grew out of decades of research. Different kinds of projects started with robots helping people after open heart surgery. 
there's a big, strong connection between the heart and the brain. Dr. Khan's idea to build a human-like robot is rooted in her own family experience. So my dad was struggling with congestive heart failure, and I was seeing his health go down. And I could also see how my mom was struggling to try and help him. My initial thought was I wanted to design an artificial heart for him. But of course, you know, there's several scientists already working on that. And if I continued to work on it, it would be several decades before I would be able to get to a point and I would have lost my dad in the meantime. So then my attention turned towards uh, making his life easy. So trying to improve his quality of life. And help my mom as well. A human element, she says, won't go away. We all have microwaves at home, right? We do not expect a microwave to cook us a full meal. All it can do is warm up some food for us. The microwave is never going to replace a cook. Similarly, a robot at this time cannot replace a human caregiver. They are to assist not only the person they're providing care to, but also the caregivers. So they are not taller than the humans. So they are less intimidating. They have this cartoonish face, which is again uh, done purposely because when there is a robot that resembles a human, the expectations from the robot are higher, much higher. But when the people see a robot that looks like a cartoon, they're more accepting of the flaws of the robot. Marcus Kubitschek is a former graduate student of Dr. Khan's and is a licensed graduate social worker at Monarch Healthcare. We're truly giving our residents a control as well as our team members as like, an opportunity to help shape the future, at least in long-term care. He also now has the title of Robot Program Director with Monarch, a position carved out to help the program between health centers and the university run smoothly. So we have eight locations currently that have um, each a pepper and a nail. So a big robot and a little robot. Kubacek says it's also important to embrace the technology, but tread carefully. I think we need to continue walking in. I don't think we jump into the deep end, but this is something we have to embrace. I think there's an extreme need for an ethics committee at like a state or federal level to begin like developing like how much robotic or autonomous intervention we can have versus like, where do we have the human intervention? Um, I don't think you can replace the human ever in healthcare. Let the robot do the mundane, boring acts compared to the humans. Let humans do the fun things where they can apply their intellectual abilities and skills to the fullest. Dr. Khan is also working to reduce the costs of building a robot below $10,000 that will help make it available to anyone. It should not be just for a select group of people. She says the goal with the aging boomer population is to keep people living in their homes as long as possible. To be able to delay admission into assisted living homes or nursing homes so that they can live independently for longer at, in their own homes. Say hi. Hello. Hi. How are you today? And residents have formed an emotional bond with Pepper. The biggest thing that we found is people are open to listening and interacting with the robots more than I expected them to. It's because the robots don't judge them. 
The robots are not telling them what to do and what not to do. Are you all done? Eugene, a longtime resident at River Valley, agrees. This way, if you happen to say something wrong, he ain't going to bite you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he always says it's important to be open to new things and to keep learning. You've got to appreciate it because the world changes every day. All the time it's changing. And uh, this is a good change. I'm Michelle Franzen, ABC News. There's been a lot of discussion in recent years about the impact online spaces are having on their users, especially younger users, when it comes to anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges. But ABC's Joy Piazza has discovered what might be considered an unlikely pairing, mental health professionals and social media platforms. It was a stark warning from the Surgeon General earlier this year. My worry is that for many kids, not for all kids, but for many kids, social media is uh, chipping away at their self-esteem. Uh, it's taking time away from activities that are critical for health and development, like sleep, but also in-person interaction and physical activity. But it's also exposing them to harmful content. Dr. Vivek Murthy sounding the alarm about excessive social media use among teenagers and adolescents and admitting that there needs to be a more aggressive approach to make these platforms safer. Dr. Murthy said that there's not efficient enough data to suggest that there are benefits for teens to use social media, but did say that there's plenty of data to suggest that social media use is harmful. The fact is, is that anything that pushes us, that challenges us, that gets us out of our so comfort zone... So what happens when mental health professionals, the very people charged with helping those who may be struggling, adopt and are active on the same platforms that have been called out as harmful? I am all for anything that safely, responsibly and humanely brings access to mental health resources to as many human beings as possible. That's Dr. Ramani Dervasala, a clinical psychologist and author whose YouTube channel on narcissism and narcissistic behavior has more than a million subscribers. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Ramani, and welcome back to this. Some videos have millions of views on their own, and it's all spawned into a podcast and another book due out next year. Dr. Ramani says when she was a professor of psychology, she noticed that some of the clients she was seeing in her private practice were, unbeknownst to them, dealing with people who had narcissistic traits. More often than not, it was linking back to these personality patterns, right? And a sense of helplessness, nothing I'm doing is working. Why aren't they listening? I'm thinking, hmm, I'm thinking their mother sounds narcissistic. And I wouldn't say it in that many words. I'd listen to them. And then over time, kind of work them to this education about what these personality styles were. So Dr. Romney said she took what she learned through her clients to the next level. I did what any good academic would. I'd try to write my little papers and deliver my little research conference papers. And then I wrote a book. You know, it was as long as media was gatekept by someone else, no one was going to let me talk about this. In 2019, Dr. Romney made her first YouTube video with the help of some of her students. She says there was skepticism on her part when it all started, but that over time, it opened a door to a whole new way of delivering concepts of narcissistic behavior to a wider audience. The fact that this topic got traction, I really think it speaks to how under-addressed, under-studied this issue is and remains. She says that social media can be a catalyst for positive outcomes in mental health and can transform complex academic subject matter into something more conversational. Nobody's reading a peer-reviewed journal article. Who's reading it? It's a siloed practice. It's an important one, don't get me wrong. We very, very rarely 
take that peer-reviewed science and translate it into something that's usable in the world. It's a sentiment echoed by Britt Frank, a licensed neuropsychotherapist and author. My content is not Britt Frank's ideas about life. I've taken all of the information, education, training, mentoring, whatever, my experience clinically, and I share it because I don't think people who sit in a classroom should be the only people that have access to this information. Frank says she promoted her book, The Science of Stuck, on her social media channels, and was delighted when she received messages of gratitude. I love getting feedback where people are like, oh, I understand this now. Oh, because when you understand it, it's less scary. Dr. Megan Moreno is the co-medical director at the American Academy of Pediatrics Center on Social Media and Youth Mental Health. She says that she's talked to patients who have had positive experiences with self-help on social media. I've seen patients who are struggling with their weight, who have found content around health at any size and content around fitness that doesn't rely on thinness that has been incredibly helpful for them to find health behaviors that really work for them and keep them healthy. Moreno says that much of the hand-wringing about social media's mental health effects might be misconstrued. Even going back 100 years to when radio started, if you look in a lot of newspapers and magazines from the early 1900s, they're talking about how the radio is terrible for people and that, you know, kids aren't going to read enough. And I mean, with every new technology, we go through this phase. But it's not just that mental health advice gets posted on social media. It's sometimes what advice gets posted and how it's presented. Both Dr. Romney and Frank include disclaimers on their posts and videos, alerting users to the fact that, among other things, their content shouldn't be a substitute for traditional talk therapy or treatment. Frank says people don't necessarily have to be an expert in the mental health field to offer sound advice, but that people should be able to use that information as a jumping-off point. When asked whether self-help social media sites have led people to seek out traditional therapy— Dr. Romney thinks so, but also says that it's not an absolute. We've got to keep it real. There are so many millions of Americans who cannot afford therapy. And so they they get turned off from it. You know, it could be anything from money to stigma to fear. And Frank says that seeking out too many self-help posts could immerse people in the terms and the concepts. I'd rather us all be talking too much about trauma and mental health than not at all. Social media accounts that sound too good to be true is also something that all three experts identified as a pitfall. Dr. Romney said she's worried about those who are already vulnerable who might get sucked into the scams. They're getting their traction because they're great at marketing, but not necessarily because they're they're sharing safe information or healthy or viable information, but they're so good at algorithms and marketing and timing and all of that, that it, that concerns me. Frank said people should look out for lofty promises and ultimatums. Because fear-based marketing actually uses what we know about our neurological wiring. Our brains are wired for survival, which means we are more quick to respond to fear-based language. Dr. Romney believes that social media literacy needs to start at an early age and parents shouldn't be the only ones educating their kids. This has to be a curricular shift. What they have is a computer in their hand. They need to get really savvy to know where to find the accurate information about X or Y or Z. It can be a complicated space to navigate and an even more complicated space to utilize for mental health professionals. But all three experts say there's a potential with social media, a potential to make it a positive, healthy experience for those who seek out what they need to be their best. I think that social media has 
likely propelled us past a lot of mental health stigma. There are many people out there who are around one, two, three in the morning. They can't sleep. They're ruminating so much. They're like, what is happening? And if there's someone sharing something that's going to say, listen, this is, this is a real thing and it's not you. And there are, there is help. And this is what it feels like. Even if they don't get into therapy, maybe it pulls them back from acute distress for a minute. To me, that's worth it. My clinical and human instincts say the potential for getting access to this information is so great that the benefits outweigh the risks. Joy Piazza, ABC News. From robots to the radio, we're working out where tech is taking us on the road to what's next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. It's What's Next, Life in Tech, a look at the latest technology and how we use it. Here's your host, technology reporter, Mike Dubusky. This show is all about technology and where it's taking us. And over the next hour, it's going to take us everywhere from the streets of the city that never sleeps to the far reaches of space. But we're starting somewhere more down to earth, a baseball diamond. For over a century, America's pastime has been all about wooden bats, leather gloves, and Cracker Jack. But now, as ABC's Rob Hawley explains, if you build it, new tech will come. Mike, I'm standing in what may be the most argued over patch of ground anywhere. Right at home plate, on a baseball field, staring into the baseball strike zone. Strike three called to end the game. That's not even close. Right down the middle. You call that a ball? Called strike three, and Schwarber is thrown out of the game. And just think about all those chances to argue over balls and strikes. Every single major league team playing at least 162 games a year. Plus college, high school, little league. There are lots of chances to argue over balls and strikes. Getting mad at the ump? Just like in a league of their own? Is as American as America's pastime. So what's next for a sport born long before computers were even a dream and only a couple decades after cameras were first developed? Turning to cameras and computers to maybe put some of those balls and strikes fights to rest. Pitch. Cave takes a cold strike three 
but he immediately calls for a challenge. That is Sam Jelinek calling the game for the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, AAA affiliate of the Philadelphia Phillies. And did you catch what he said right at the end? One important word, challenge. Iron Pigs lose the challenge. This is a high-tech system being tested by Major League Baseball in every single AAA park across the country. ABS, Automated Ball and Strike Calling System. In a way, adding a computer to the umpiring crew. Shall we play a game? No, 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 no. This isn't war games. This is baseball. Here's how it works. Specialized cameras are put up all around the park, all aimed to watch the ball from the pitcher all the way into the catcher's mitt. The computer system figuring out if it's a strike or a ball. Just a bit outside. There's two different ways this can be used, and baseball is testing them both. There's a challenge version of that where you can say, okay, I'm going to pick a certain amount of pitches. I have a certain amount of challenges I can use, and I'm going to use that in this particular moment to argue balls and strikes. And then the technology will kind of be the, the final uh, judge in all this. Doug Glanville is a former major leaguer with the Cubs, Phillies, and Rangers, and analyst for both ESPN and Marquee Sports. And then, of course, there's a system where you where they call every single pitch. Back to the home of the Iron Pigs and Sam Jelinek, he says the ump wears an earpiece. And in those games when ABS is calling all the balls and strikes? Basically, pitch comes home, he'll hear in his ear, ball or strike, Makes the call. In other games, the ump is calling balls and strikes. The hitter, catcher, or pitcher can challenge a call, but they have to do it right away. And then, a lot like the Hawkeye system in tennis, the in-stadium scoreboard shows what ABS sees. And the pitch literally flies in. You see it, whether or not it hits or misses, ball or strike. We say the call was overturned or the call stands, and then we play on. Glanville says one of the most important parts of testing the whole system out is making sure it doesn't drag too much on the flow of the game. You want something that won't interfere where everybody's spending more time adjudicating the sport than you are actually playing it. And you want to make sure it seamlessly fits in, which of course takes time, so that yeah. these decisions are made quickly. Each team gets three challenges a game. Get it right, you keep your challenge. Wrong, and you lose one. Doug Glanville says that adds a whole new element to the game for players who are forever frustrated by what they think are wrong calls. I played with a lot of guys that no ball ever called on them that was called a strike was ever a strike. I played with a lot of guys like that. and But this will put the, your money where your mouth is like, okay, now you're going to lose a challenge if you're wrong. And I think people will kind of like think, think twice a little bit about what actually is a ball because are you willing to waste the challenge on it. Rafael Marchand, catcher for the Iron Pigs. Throw to second from Marchand is in time. Has been in the middle of plenty of challenge calls this season, both as the catcher and a hitter. He says it's yet another thing he has to think about at an already busy position, weighing the strategy of challenges. A couple pitches that maybe could be a strike or maybe close to the sun, but I don't want to call on that in that situation right now because it's not like a big situation for, for, the, for the game. Yeah. So maybe I don't want to lose that challenge at that time. And he says it's definitely changed the way he sees the game. To me, it's like I'm playing like a PlayStation. <laughs> in that, just like in a video game, the computer strike zone doesn't change. But the umpires are, well, human. And that humanity, where sometimes the strike zone is a little different, is something that's been part of baseball since there's been baseball. They're not robots, and and I don't know if you want everything to be robotic, because then pretty soon you're just playing a video game. And Doug Glanville points out. The umpires, by the way, get a lot more right than they're ever given credit for. 
And I think when you look at the real data, when, when the instant replay came on, they got 95, 97% of the calls right. You know, they were very, very accurate. Which is why, given the choice between ABS calling all the balls and strikes or a system where players can challenge a call. I like the challenge system, you know, because you, first of all, I mean, yes, I know technology, there'll be self-driving cars and all that, but you got, you got to hold in some of the elements of humanity. They do so much more than call balls and strikes, even for balls and strikes. And virtually everyone we talk to at an Iron Pigs game agrees. I like the challenge system. I kind of like it where the hitters and um, catchers can challenge. Yeah, I think ch the challenge system is actually really good. I guess I would prefer the, the one where you challenge. Anthony Pileggi from Harmony, New Jersey, says it's all about fairness. I think the machine can like make it more accurate and make the game like more fair and like make less arguments with like the umpire and less ejections. Justin Wren admits he's a little old school but could get on board with the challenge system in the big leagues. It's kind of like baby steps. I don't just jump in the pool. I like to go in slowly. So give me some time to adjust, you know what I mean? Ryan Lavalla likes that game within the game of the pitcher and hitter trying to figure out the ump. The umpire's interpretation almost adds a little bit to the game to me, right? And his son Carter likes the idea of the challenge system too, and as a budding third baseman... How much do you think you would challenge in a game if you could challenge in your game? <laughs> a lot. If Carter makes it to the big leagues, it's almost a sure thing that some sort of technology will be involved with calling those balls and strikes. There's been talk about it at the major league level, possibly as soon as next season. Standing at home plate with a bat in my hands, Rob Hawley, ABC News. Once again, here's ABC News technology reporter Mike Dubusky, who's trying to remember where his self-driving car parked itself. So far, we've spent a lot of time talking about where we're going, but now it's time to talk about the roads we'll be taking to get there. You see, the car world is gearing up for some pretty big changes. The state of California says that all new cars sold there are going to have to be zero emission by 2035. That sounds far off, but when you take into consideration the global nature of the car market, how long it takes to develop new vehicles, the gas-powered cars you're seeing hit the market now are likely to be some of the last of their kind. These burbles of internal combustion you're hearing come from a 2023 Cadillac Escalade V. It's a full-size luxury truck that General Motors has fitted with a 6.2-liter supercharged V8 pulled from the Corvette. It is the most powerful Cadillac ever made, developing 682 horsepower. Another big number is the price, just over $150,000. Miles to the gallon? Well, if you have to ask. But the V isn't the Escalade that's gotten everyone talking this year. Okay, so I'm here at the official launch event for the new Cadillac Escalade IQ. This is a brand new full-size electric SUV from General Motors. It's very luxurious. It's got a bunch of lights on it and different electric vehicle technologies. I'm going to go talk to Mandy Damon, who is the chief engineer on this vehicle, and I want to get her thoughts on exactly where she thinks electric vehicle technology is going in the future. Uh, Mandy, hi. Thanks for talking to me. These electric vehicles, especially new ones, are heavy and expensive. As someone who works on electric vehicles and thinks about this a lot, is that something that you see, there's two numbers coming down eventually? Like, how do you view the future of it when it comes to, like, 
these sort of efficiency questions and cost questions? We're always looking to improve. So, you know, we're very happy with the performance that we're getting from the Escalade today. You know, even 750 horsepower that's given us that zero to 60 in five seconds, 450 miles of range requires a large battery pack. But are we getting more efficient over time? Absolutely. And that's something that we're continuing to work on with the other vehicles off the Altium platform. Frankly, that's already how we've been able to make some incremental improvements on this platform and with this all new Escalade to keep improving that. Um, we announced the starting price at 130. And frankly, when you see the vehicle in its presence and you, you saw some of the Cadillac sales numbers doing very well today. So certainly took that all into account. We'll continue to improve, but we feel like this is positioned very appropriately. Is this something that we should be prioritizing right now? Because another one of these questions that comes up when we talk about EV adoption is, do we want to directly replace our gas experience one-to-one -one with an electric vehicle? Or is this an opportunity to rethink our relationship to the car? Because you're, you're spending more money and these cars are expensive and they're heavy. You know, how do you balance those two things? I think it certainly depends on the vehicle um, because you're right. Like with a, a nameplate like Escalade, we went all in and we love that because there's no compromises. Like because this is an EV, we didn't take away any of the technology. And we've got other offerings in the, the GM EV lineup that will do that, but certainly something that we'll continue to, to work on and make sure that we've got the mix right. But I think this is the appropriate content, technology, craftsmanship, you name it. And that was a huge deal for us in designing this as really go all in. So Mandy Damon mentioned some pretty big numbers there, 750 horsepower, 450 miles of electric range. But there's one number we don't know, and it's an important one, the weight. The closest analog we have to the electric Escalade is the GMC Hummer EV, with which it shares an electric architecture. That vehicle tops 9,000 pounds. If the Cadillac comes in anywhere near that, it will exceed the weight limit for the Brooklyn Bridge, which is less than a mile away from where the Escalade debuted. To find out exactly why these numbers are so big and what that does to EV adoption, I sat down with Patrick George. Um, okay, so Patrick George, how should I attribute you? First things first. <laughs> um, you could call me a freelance writer and editor and I contribute to The Verge, The Atlantic and lots of other publications and I cover the future of transportation. He's also the host of the podcast Land of the Giants, the Tesla Shockwave. And we're gonna get to Tesla, but first we talked about why electric vehicles in general are so darn heavy. It's exactly a battery problem. It's just these battery cells are very heavy. You know, you're talking about lithium, you're talking about you know rare, rare minerals that energy is run through. I mean, you know, a lot of energy density. It's just there's every reason that this is gonna be a heavier setup. I'm an enthusiast. I used to be the editor-in-chief of Jalopnik, so I'm a sports car guy. And this is something that, you know, those of us who, you know, even if we're, we're pro-EV and excited about going zero emissions and the performance these cars offer. Yeah, we kind of look at this new generation of electric cars. We're like, these aren't lightweight at all. Like, how do you make a car like a, like a Lotus sports car or a Mazda Miata in, in the EV era without it being the size of an apartment complex? Big, heavy, long-range batteries aren't good when you want to make a tiny sports car like the Mazda Miata. That makes sense. But as it turns out, putting a large battery into a large truck like the Escalade creates its own set of problems, too. 
For one, bigger vehicles require more energy to move around. With big heavy EVs like this, like, okay, it, it's still going to be more efficient over its life cycle than a gas car, but it's not as efficient as it could be. It's not as good for the environment as it could be. That's one side of it. And then there's the fact that to build a battery size this big, that's a lot of resources. That's a lot of minerals, a lot of mining. A lot of stuff is going to go into making this pack, uh, which, which is a pack that could power, like, what, two or three or four other small cars? Yeah. Like, that's that's proving to be not the best thing for the environment either. And to be very fair, like, you know, fossil fuel extraction isn't very good for the environment either. But it's like we are in, in the mining department almost trading one problem for another to make these giant battery packs. One big number that we haven't talked about yet is 130000 That's the targeted starting price for the Escalade IQ. Now, it's a luxury vehicle, but EVs on average retail for thousands more than their gas-powered counterparts. And George tells me that's a tough pill for car buyers to swallow, especially now. It's a lot to ask people to go out and spend sixty grand on a Hyundai right now, especially with interest rates being what they are. So we are stuck in a weird moment where we need more cheaper EVs out there. But that's also going to depend on charging, which is rolling out slowly, and EV adoption. It's it's a co- it's kind of this catch twenty two thing right now. Like the good news is that um, there are so many battery plants being built in this country right now, uh, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. They're getting the huge subsidies to build battery plants, mm-hmm. bringing a lot of jobs to. Um, and when those things are built here, they're built at scale. That will bring the cost of these EVs down. And I think if all these automakers are serious about, you know, we're going to go all electric by 2030, 2035, well, you're going to have to have more affordable options in there. And, you know, that that doesn't always track with the profits they were making, but I think eventually it's going to have to. And, like, when you look at the cars that have been selling really well this year, it's like the Chevy Bolt. Uh, it's, it's, it's the more affordable Teslas. It's the Model 3 and the Model Y. Like, I think people want – all the data I've seen shows people want like 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 more normal sized affordable electric cars where they can just drive something usual and not pay for gas anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know the Escalade for all the cool things about it is is not is not that car. To Patrick's point there, the low-cost end of the EV market has seen some movement this summer. Earlier this year, General Motors announced that it was canceling the Chevy Bolt, an electric hatchback that is, for now, the cheapest new EV you can get. You can actually pick one up for under $27,000, and that's before federal and state electric vehicle incentives. That price tag, as well as the Bolt's 250 miles of electric range, means it's popular. It was the best-selling non-Tesla EV in the back half of last year. But the company says it wants to move away from its old electric vehicle technology. The Bolt came out more than six years ago, and it faced a big recall over battery fires in 2021, so GM, it's pulling the plug. Then, in June... Volvo pulls the wraps off a compact SUV. It's not dissimilar in size from the Chevy Bolt. It's electric. It's called the EX30, and it costs about $35,000. Then, the following month, GM CEO Mary Barra had an announcement. The Bolt lives. She says they're working on a second-generation model right now, but she didn't elaborate on a timetable or a price there's one company we haven't gotten to yet, and it's a big one. The biggest automotive company in the world, in fact, when it comes to valuation. So let's get back to it. This conversation is hard to have without talking about Tesla. So this is the Tesla question. (laughs) The Cambrian explosion of electric cars, you mentioned a lot there. Hyundai and Kia and Ford and obviously General Motors we've been talking about. Tesla, 
is kind of the the old guard at this point, right? Yeah. They've had the Model S on the market since 2012. They have a lineup of vehicles, but a lot of them are maybe showing their age a little bit, at least in terms of the look and yeah. in terms of you know people's familiarity with them. What does Tesla's next five years look like? Is there new product in the pipeline? How are they going to deal with now the most competition they've ever faced? I, that's a great question. And I've talked to a lot of people in the industry, including like high-profile Tesla investors who were worried that um, it's, it's CEO for all the disruption he's done, that he's very distracted with his, his new um, social media side hustle that he's running. Um, so I, I actually think what you said is, is perfect. It was put perfectly. Um, that is where Tesla is weakest at the moment. Like, it is an aging lineup of cars. Like for this Land of the Giants podcast, I talked to I talked to an early engineer there. I'm like, are, are you proud of their success? He goes, Yeah, but I'm tired of seeing the damn things everywhere. And that's that's fair. It's like you go to like in New York, like every every other car is a Model Y at this point. So mm-hmm. what does the next five years look like? They're they're going to be rolling out the Cybertruck. I am personally not convinced that is an F-150 killer the way that a lot of like Tesla hardcore fans think it is. I think that that stainless steel body it has is really hard to make. That's why nobody's done it since DeLorean, like for a reason. But they've proved me wrong many times before, so I could be wrong there. I, I do think that if Tesla's smart, what it would be doing was having a big event this year and next. It's like, here's the next five years look like. We have like three new crossovers coming out. Like a sedan to replace the Model Three and the Model Y, a couple crazy things, mm-hmm. and like make good on those promises. Because this company, as much as as great as it is at like building up these battery plants and 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 now building these Model Threes and Model Ys at scale, it is very bad still at launching new products. And like that's going to be a major weakness as all of these new car companies come to market, not just here but in in China. Like that's where where Tesla's a major player. You've never even heard of half these brands. Like most people haven't. And for now, they're not going to come to this country. But like they've they've gotten really good at building EVs and they are like direct Tesla killers just from dozens of brands. And like that's that's going to eat Tesla's lunch over there. When it comes to Tesla. Yeah. What keeps Elon Musk up at night? (laughs) I think that in in the past he said they've asked him which competitors is, is he most afraid of impressed by he's he's mentioned Hyundai by name which I think is is a real mark in Hyundai's favor because mm-hmm. this guy doesn't dole out praise easily uh he's mentioned BYD which is a, a gigantic Chinese car company um that if you haven't heard of them you will in the next few years um they're they're a major player in this space and will be in our country eventually I think what keeps him up at night I, 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 I part of me wants to say like Twitter and tweets and X and and stuff like that it does seem like that's where a lot of his attention is he's you know CEO of six companies now his investors are starting to raise questions about his uh, attention to Tesla, which is where most of his wealth comes from. And in a decade of covering them, I've, I've never heard anyone kind of bring that up before. Mm. There are, uh, you know, Tesla's CFO left kind of abruptly. There are questions about succession, about, you know, if, if Elon got hit by a bus tomorrow, like who runs Tesla? Or, uh, you know, there are investors who want to see Tesla have a full-time CEO. It's a very damning thing to say. I, I don't know. I think that I don't want to say he's hitting his Waterloo with with Twitter with X, but um, you know that's that's been a real disaster uh, financially for that company, for him reputationally, and um, you know we're not seeing a lot of fresh things out of Tesla besides price cuts this year, and I, I'm starting to wonder when that's going to add up. But again, that is a company that they have a way of proving people wrong, and when they when they get hit, they they somehow just bounce back and hit back twice as hard every time. So I would not underestimate them in the next few years. Patrick George, host of Land of the Giants, the Tesla Shockwave. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been wonderful. 
So far, we have been focused on big tech topics, both in that the companies we're talking about can collectively be called big tech, and also the tech in question has some pretty big implications. But I want to talk about something small for just a second. One thing about me, I love a long article. Think pieces, columns, news analysis. Give me a long read on an obscure topic, and I will be happy. But those articles can be tough to read on a computer. I'm a technology reporter, and even I get tired of staring at a desktop for hours on end. So I've been scouting around for a solution to this little headache, and as it turns out, I'm not the only one. Hey, this is Devendra Hardwar, Senior Editor at Engadget, and I just want to give everybody some ideas around reading news. You know, these days I am getting very tired of being on social media and all those sites, so for many, many years I've been using the app Pocket to save articles, which you could do from your web browser, on your desktop or your phone, and go back and read those later. Uh, there are also other apps for this, like Instapaper, but I really like Pocket. Right now it's owned by Mozilla, and it has all sorts of cool features, um, you know, from the home screen, it can recommend articles that are very popular right now among other Pocket users. Mostly though, it's a way for me to sit back, uh, put my computer away, step away from the screen, and you know just read the news I need to catch up on. So now out of habit, when I encounter a large article, I try not to read it on my computer, and I try to save it for when I'm sitting on the couch or just need to take a break uh, away from writing and other work. The other good thing about apps like this is that it gives you other ways to consume these articles. So Pocket has a text-to-speech functionality which can read articles aloud to you. And uh, from my experience, it's pretty good. If I'm reading a very long piece and I just wanna take a walk down the street or something, it does a pretty good job of letting me read that piece on the go. But I think it's also just a good way to remind ourselves that we don't have to just sit and stare at screens anymore. You can plug in some headphones or, you know, plug your computer into a Bluetooth speaker and have the news read to you. My main thing here is that you don't have to sit and scroll social media all day. You don't have to build up a ton of tabs on your computer. Take a step back, save these articles. I think that can help everybody get a sense of control in our you know, information overloaded world. If you're using an e-reader, you can also send articles from Pocket and Instapaper to those too. So that's always a good thing to get away from any screen with a backlight. And if you're looking for other ways to consume news, I've been using the app Article, which does a similar thing to the Pocket uh, crowdsourcing thing. It highlights uh, news across different publications. It can connect to your existing subscriptions. And again, it's another way to read the news without hitting the web or hitting the crap storm of stuff you find on social media. And as always, hey, RSS feeds are out there too. So I still use the app Feedly when I really need to browse several sites at once or just see what's going on in the world. It's certainly a better way to read the news than going on Twitter these days. Welcome back to What's Next from ABC News Radio. Here's your host, a man who forgot to wind his smartwatch today, ABC News technology reporter Mike Dubusky. For our last story, we're going back to the beginning of the human experience beyond Earth. And for that, we go to Houston, Texas, where ABC's Jim Ryan has the mission of figuring out what's next in the realm of space travel. Roger, we just had word from Houston. We're ready to have you get out whenever you're ready. Give us a mark when you egress the spacecraft. 
It was June of 1965, the 10th crewed space mission in NASA history, and the first controlled from the newly christened Johnson Space Center here in Houston. And Ed White became the first American to conduct extravehicular activity, a spacewalk. McDonnell Aircraft Corporation was the prime contractor on that billion-dollar project. But those first-generation missions were clearly a government program. Six decades later, the public-private paradigm has shifted dramatically. Three, two, one. In 2023, NASA's Cape Canaveral remains the launch pad of choice, but now private companies are the ones pushing the button. You now see Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin doing regular suborbital flights. SpaceX is now providing somewhat regular human space flight to the International Space Station. Eric Ingram heads a company called Scout, one of the growing roster of players in the private sector space industry. His firm provides sensing tools and systems to keep all the rockets, satellites, and space junk separated. It is a super crowded environment, and the number of active satellites in orbit are expected to go up 40x over the next decade. And so we need a lot more robust infrastructure to ensure we know what's going on in space. Astrophysicist Hakim Olusheyi sees a bright future for companies like Scout. The issue of space debris, of traffic in space, you know, and and so I, I see things advancing, but I also see things advancing in fits and starts. And just because private companies are so deeply involved doesn't mean that NASA is no longer a player. Administrator Bill Nelson stood at a podium in May to announce that. Today, we, NASA, announced that Blue Origin and partners Lockheed Martin, Draper, Boeing, Astrobotic, and Honeybee Robotics will build a human landing system to deliver NASA astronauts to the lunar surface. Astrophysicist Hakim Olusheyi. The biggest news, of course, is Artemis, scheduled to have two launches, the Artemis 2 in end of 2024, and then Artemis 3 in 2025, if everything goes well. So that's the major headline, right? NASA returning to the moon in the latest, greatest, most advanced spacecraft ever. The Artemis missions will land the first woman and first person of color on the moon, and plans to explore more of the lunar surface than ever before. And whereas America's original astronauts were ex-military pilots... The right stuff isn't necessarily the right stuff we need anymore. Eric Ingram of Scout Space Incorporated... The right stuff mentality isn't there anymore because it's not necessary. And there's plenty of jobs and opportunities and avenues to get involved in space and the space industry. And I really invite a lot of people to do some research, look into everything that's going on and get involved and stay informed about what's happening. And if the first space race set the United States against the Soviet Union, the current one has Jeff Bezos pitted against Elon Musk, pitted against Sir Richard Branson, the billionaire captains of space tourism. Three, two, one, release, release, release. Fire. Fire. Branson's Virgin Galactic uses a rocket plane that's dropped from another plane before soaring into the mesosphere for a few minutes of weightlessness. Bezos has flown on his company's Blue Origin capsule to the edge of space. Eric Ingram specializes in safety and was struck by Bezos' choice of his own brother as a crewmate. He trusted it enough that on the very first crewed flight, he not only took himself, but also his brother. That spoke a lot to me about his faith in the system and his trust in his engineers. Bezos had another high-profile passenger on board. At 90, actor and author William Shatner became the oldest person ever in space. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine.
Eric Ingram. There's this effect that's called the overview effect, that when people go to space, they look down on Earth and they they don't see borders. They just see a, a one united Earth, and it kind of resets their understanding of our position on Earth. Astrophysicist Hakim Olusheyi says it gives people lucky enough to make the trip a new appreciation for their home. There is no Earth 2.0. And we are designed for a particular gravitational acceleration, a particular atmospheric pressure, and a particular mix of gases, and a particular temperature range that is going to be tough to find anywhere else. Three, two, one, ignition, engines full power, and liftoff of SpaceX Falcon 9. Go Falcon, go Starlink. Elon Musk has gone even beyond the Bezos project, says ABC's Gio Benitez. Four civilians on the mission known as Inspiration4 orbiting the Earth about 47 times at 17,500 miles per hour. Their SpaceX Crew Dragon experiencing 3,500 degrees of heat as it re-entered the atmosphere. Splashing down in the Atlantic near Florida. Rescue boats at the ready. For now, space tourism remains the pastime only of the super wealthy. But Ingram and Olusheyi both expect that to change. If you look at aviation back in the, the 20s and 30s, that was a mostly a rich person's game. It was uh, more tourist than it was utility. And I think we're seeing parallels with that right now. Hopefully the cost comes down. Hopefully it becomes something that a tourist can do. It's like air travel, right? Where it was something for the rich and famous, but then it became something that everyday people can do, right? It's a bus in the sky. So hopefully we'll have a bus in space. <laughs> and one day space tourism will mean more than paying hundreds of thousands of dollars simply to float in weightlessness for a few minutes. There's several companies working on developing space stations. So there's a bit of a race going on to see who has the first commercial space station out there. So very soon those people going to space will have destinations to go to. From Gemini to Apollo to the space shuttle program, and now the slew of private companies launching rockets, deploying satellites, and designing Martian living quarters, the answer to the question, what's next in space travel, changes with each liftoff. Jim Ryan, ABC News at Johnson Space Center, Houston. Over the course of this show, we looked at a tech industry in the midst of a scramble. Big tech behemoths and plucky startups alike are rushing to put their eggs into a new basket. Some are betting that basket will be artificial intelligence. Others are thinking about the future of our social lives online or the challenges of transitioning to electric cars. And it's all coming while we rethink the way we work, watch TV, play sports, and listen to the radio. What's next in the world of tech could be any one of those things. It could be all of them, or none of them, or something we haven't even thought of yet. One thing's for certain. You don't build the next iPhone, or Tesla, or Facebook. You don't build what's next without breaking a couple of eggs. What's Next Life in Tech was presented by ABC News technology reporter Mike Dubusky and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Thanks for joining us.